grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. And he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before his, its shears is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people. And they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence, and there was no deceit in his mouth. Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He, was put, he has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offering. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will divide him a portion with the many, and he shall divide the spoil with the strong, because he poured out his soul to death and was numbered with the transgressors. Yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would help us right now, that your spirit would uh, move away the clouds from our minds, our hearts, and that you would help us to see the servant, that you would help us to see Jesus clearly. And as we see Jesus, Father, we pray that you will change us. We need you to speak to us now by your spirit. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I was dreading the next meeting of my uh, college advanced algebra class. I was a math major in college, and that's what I finished college with. And, and, uh, and I had this strange class. Um, I, I never had a class like this before where uh, the teacher, basically the way that he taught the class was the very first day when we showed up to class, he gave us a, a sheet of paper that had a few things that were true on it, and then he had a list of problems. And then he just said, okay, here you go, and he sent us away. And he said, okay, next class, I'm going to start calling on people. And your job is just to come up to the board and then to prove one of these problems true. You need to, to figure out how to prove that the problem is true or disprove it. It doesn't really matter, but you had to stand up and basically, so that students basically taught the class by figuring out the solution to the problems and then explaining it to everybody else. And so I was dreading the next class because I knew that I was going to be called. I knew that my name was coming up soon. And I did not have a solution to the problem, to any of the problems on the sheet of paper. And I was, I was, you know, terrified of embarrassing myself in front of the other students. I was, I was afraid of failing in front of my teacher. And so I, I, that's all I could think about. How can I solve this problem? You know, I sat there in the library for hours just staring at my paper, 
trying to figure it out. I, I even, you know, as I fell asleep at night, I was thinking about how can I solve this thing? What's the solution to this problem? And, and it was just like a, a huge burden, you know? It was just constant, this constant crushing burden as I anticipated having to give an answer and not having one. I, I, I really believe that all of us are living under the same kind of pressure as we live our general lives. We are all constantly trying to find a solution to our problems. And our problems are many, but we're constantly looking for solutions. You know, we're looking for the, a solution to the, to the problem of just how I feel on a regular daily basis, you know, a, problem, a, a solution to, to the fact that I am, I am discouraged and I'm frustrated and I, I'm just not happy. We're, we're trying to find a solution to the problem of our relationships where I, I feel like so many of my relationships, I have conflict and, they're, and they're just, there's no peace in my relationships or, or I have a lot of relationships with people. You know, I have family, I have friends, but I feel incredibly alone. Or we try to find solutions to the problem that, that, that I don't really feel like I'm, I'm satisfied or I'm content with life. It, I, I'm not satisfied with, with what I'm doing at work. I'm not satisfied even with the, the things that I do for fun. I still have this sense of longing. And I don't have a solution. I'm trying to solve these problems. I'm trying to solve the problem of just feeling of my, my own character flaws, of, of not feeling like I measure up in any category in my life whether it's as, as a friend or, or as a father, as a husband. How am I, I think we all have a long list of problems that we're trying to solve. And, and the weight of these problems, even though we might not be thinking about it that way, the weight of these problems is crushing. It can be crushing to us. Now the Bible tells us that the root of every single one of these struggles, the root of these struggles is one big problem. And the Bible calls it sin. This is problem of sin, this problem that, that we all are, are living our lives according to our own values, our own desires. We're living for ourselves rather than for God and for other people. Um, Isaiah 53 sums it up for us right here in Isaiah 53, 6. If you look at, at, at verse 6, he says, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. That, that is the, the Bible's description of sin. We've all turned to our own way. I'm trying to live my life on my own terms, according to what I want. You know, we've, we've turned away from God, and, it, and it's broken our relationship with God. It's broken our relationship with other people. It, it impacts all of these other problems. And so the, the, the real question is, I, for us, a lot of us, you know, we, we're like, I need to solve the problem, that all these other problems that are out here. And that's what we want. When we come to God, a lot of times, as I said before, we, we're like, God, I need you to solve all of my other problems. You know, my health problems, my, my people problems, my work problems. But God says the problem that you need to solve before any of the other ones, the one that inflames all of the other ones, the one that, that, that impacts all the other ones, is this one big problem. It's the problem of your sin. It's a problem that you have this constant tendency to run from God, to turn away from God, to not listen to God, and to do things the way you want to do them, on your own terms, for your own happiness primarily, rather than for his glory. And, and that is why we live in a world that's, that, that it's, it's broken. It's not the way that it's supposed to be. 
this is the problem that we have to solve before all the other ones. And, and, and this is the thing. And when, when you, as you're looking at, as I said, as you were looking at the servant, as, as the, the original Jewish people were reading this, they were looking at the servant. They're like, all right, the servant's going to come. He's going to be the hero that we all need. He's going to solve all of our problems out there. But finally, he gets to chapter 52 and 53, and he says, this is what the hero is going to come to do. This is what he's coming to do. It's, it's to deal with your sin. And how do we know that? Well, I mean, at the very end, of the, the very last thing he says, he says, he bore the sin of many. But if you back up to the very beginning of what we were, we were reading, where it says, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. And then it goes on to say, As many were astonished at you, how, why, what were they astonished about? If you skip down to verse 15, it says, So shall he sprinkle many nations. The, the people are going to be astonished at how he sprinkles many nations. What is he talking about? What, what does it mean that he's going to sprinkle the nations? Well, a, a Jewish person, as they're reading that, they would have been reminded, where, where, have I, you know, where, where do I see this idea of sprinkling? Where am I f- familiar with this idea of sprinkling in our lives, in the lives of, life of Israel? Well, um, it has to do with the, the, uh, one of the occupations in Israel that everybody knew had, a, had a, you know, kind of the tendency to sprinkle things all the time were the priests. The priests were constantly sprinkling things. They were sprinkling them with blood. I mean, for example, a person who was, had a leprous disease, if they were cleansed of their disease, if they were cured, you know what they had to do? They had to go to the priest, and then the priest would declare them clean. But in the process of declaring them clean, in the ceremony of declaring them clean, they would take blood and they would sprinkle it on them. So, so sprinkling the blood was connected to them being declared clean, right? But more importantly than that, they had this, uh, this one day called the Day of Atonement in Israel, one day a year where they would, they would sacrifice these animals um, on behalf of the sin of all the people. And what the priest would do is he would, he would take the blood of that animal and he would go into the holiest part of the tabernacle. And he was to take that blood and sprinkle it on the mercy seat, this thing called the mercy seat. And that was the place where, where the priest was said to, to meet with God. And so sprinkling the blood on the mercy seat was, it was a symbol of the fact that the people's sin was taken care of and they were clean and they were able to come into God's presence then. Okay? And so when it talks about this servant sprinkling the nations, that's what they would have thought of. Oh, well, so the, the mission of the servant, even as, as this passage, begin, passage begins, the mission of the servant has to do with making us clean, with making nations clean, with dealing with our sin before God, with, with bringing us to, to God's presence and, and restoring us in relationship with God. That's the mission of the servant. And so how does he go about that? And, and this is what's important. I, I want us to, as, as, as we're looking towards Christmas in just a couple days, as our lives are filled up with so many things, you know, when I, when I um, took that math class, I was able to find a lot of solutions and, and stand up before the class and give them. And, and, and a lot of the times I would find a solution and I would be like, oh, it was so obvious the whole time. It was there. It was right there. And I was constantly missing it. And this is what I want to make sure this morning as we look at this passage, that, that as our lives are filled up with all this stuff with Christmas and, and the problems that come with Christmas, there are problems that come with Christmas, right? That we don't miss what's right there. That we don't miss why Jesus came, okay? And what he came to do. So what do we know about the, the servant and, and the, the solution that the servant brings? Well, first of all, God's solution is unexpected. It's unexpected, right? Um, again, if you look at the first couple of verses of the passage, it, after it says, so shall he sprinkle many nations, it then says, kings shall shut their mouths because, because of him. 
the leaders of the world will look on at, at this servant and they will be speechless. They'll be like, I don't know what to say. This, they will be completely surprised. It says, for that which, they, that which has not been told them, they see. They're going to be seeing something that they, they had never heard about before. It says, that which they have not heard, they understand. They're going to hear things that, or they're going to understand things that they've never heard about before. It's going to be something that they were not expecting. It's going to be something totally different. This, God's solution to their problems is going to be an unexpected one, something that, that's out of the box, that, that not, not what they would have anticipated to be the solution to their problems. And that's what we need to recognize, that, that um, I think as we look at our lives, we look at the problems of our lives, a lot of us have, um, we, we, we have a lot of expect, expectations about what's going to fix life, what's going to make life better. And we need to recognize that, that our ways are not God's ways. God's ways are not our ways. We need to be willing to be surprised by how he's going to fix our problems. We need to be willing to, the, to, the, to, to see the fact that, that God's solution to our problem is not what we would envision, what we would expect. And that goes to, towards the, the big problem of sin and all of our little problems. We need to recognize that God works in a way that's different than us in a way that, that's different than we might expect. Secondly, a big part of why God's solution was so unexpected is because, is because it was unimpressive. It was unimpressive. As you, look at the, as you look at this passage, and it continues to describe the servant down in, in chapter 53, in verse 2. It says, For he grew up before him like a, lo- a young plant, and like a root out of dry ground. Can you picture a root out of dry ground? What would that look like? It wouldn't look all that impressive. It wouldn't look like it could really accomplish much. A root, like dry ground, you pull a root out, it's, it's going to be like shriveled and, and small, right? And this is what the servant, he's describing the servant. He's going to be completely unimpressive. And as you go on, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him. He's not going to look powerful and amazing, you know, he's not going to draw our attention. It continues on. No beauty that we should desire him. He's, he's not going to be incredibly attracted that we should be like running to him and be like, yes, yes, the solution. He is the one that has the answers. And this is something that's important for us to, to recognize and know that, that God's solution to our problems is an unimpressive solution. Because in our lives, in our sinful lives, we all tend to be drawn to things that are big things that are, are, are huge, things that are attractive, things that are impressive, things that are strong and powerful and obviously influential. Aren't we drawn to those things? You know, don't, don't we want our lives to look strong and powerful and influential and beautiful? Anybody who, who has an Instagram account, what do you post on Instagram? You post things that other people are going to be impressed by, at least things that other people are going to think is, is nice and beautiful and attra- the things that people are going to be attracted to, Right? You don't post stuff that's completely unimpressive. I mean, what's the point of that? Nobody's going to like it. You're not going to get any likes. That's what we're drawn to. We're drawn to things that are impressive and big and powerful because we think that that is what the solution is. We think the solution is in, in being strong, in being beautiful. I mean, that's why when we look at people that we think have it all together, people who are famous and they have everything they could possibly have. And we look at them, and they're, you know, um, every image we see of them is perfect. When we hear that somehow their lives are falling apart, are you, like, really surprised? You're like, but they had everything. They shouldn't have had any problems. They had everything. 
because we think that everything is what solves our problems. But, but God wants us to notice in bringing a servant that is unimpressive that only he can solve our problems. Only he can solve our greatest problem. Not any of these other things. Not our own ability or strength. It's only him. Thirdly, we're, um, and, and I'm going to arrange the order here. I, well, I, I forgot even to mention, sorry guys, for those of you guys who like outlines, it's on the back if you didn't notice it. <laughs> but if you've been missing it, so the first two points, it was, it was, uh, that, that it was unexpected, it's unimpressive. Thirdly, instead of uncomfortable, we're going to go with undeserved, okay? Undeserved. Sorry, I'm a little out of it today. Um, this is one of the things you, you see repeated over and over and over and over and over again in this passage, that the way the servant provides the solution for our sin is in a way that's completely undeserved. It's completely undeserved. Um, you see constantly that the servant is bearing things, experiencing things on behalf of others, right? Not because he deserves to, but because others have done these things. I mean, just look at a couple examples. Verse 4, Surely he has borne our griefs. He's carried our sorrows. Right? Verse 5, He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. As you continue on in verse 6, that the Lord has laid on him our iniquity, the iniquity of us all, our failures, have been laid on him. If you skip down, if you're wondering, well, maybe he deserved it too. No, in verse 9 it says, although he had done no violence, there was no deceit in his mouth. He was perfect. He didn't deserve to suffer. Continue on further in verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. And then at the end, yet he bore the sin of many. Hopefully it's kind of obvious to you that this servant, the way that he's going to bring the solution is by taking upon himself what we all deserve. He's going to bear it on his shoulders. He's going to receive the judgment that we deserve for our sin, for our iniquities, for our transgressions, because that is the problem. It's our transgression, our iniquities, our sin, the fact that we have turned our backs on God. And the only way to be restored and to be, and to be made right before God is for Jesus, the servant, to bear our sin for us. That's it. The problem is the sin problem. We have transgressed. We have iniquity. We have sin. And the servant who is perfect and innocent suffered for the sins of others. He was judged. He was crushed. He was pierced. He was stricken when he didn't deserve it. This is the solution. Our greatest problem, the problem under every other problem, the problem that inflames all of the other problems, it's sin. And Jesus, the servant, is the only one who can take care of it by taking upon himself willingly the judgment that we deserve. And so, so God's solution, it's, it's an undeserved solution. And, and on the flip side, by the way, it's undeserved for us, right? We deserve to bear our sin. 
We deserve to bear the, the weight, the crushing weight of our, uh, our transgressions against God. And we receive peace instead. So lastly, I just want to, just real quick, talk about how the solution that the servant gives us is uncomfortable. Um, one thing that happens to me, to me as I read this passage is um, I get uncomfortable. I get uncomfortable. The passage is downright depressing, isn't it? When you really think about it, look at how the servant suffers. Look at all these different ways the servant suffers. He's despised, says multiple times. He's rejected, full of sorrows, grief. People hide their faces from him. He's smitten by God. He's afflicted. He's pierced. He's crushed. He's chastised. He's oppressed. He's sheared and slaughtered when it uses the image of a lamb, right? He's judged. He's cut off. He's in anguish. I mean, this is the Sunday before Christmas. We're, we're about to have a bunch of cute kids come out here and look really cute and, and sing some precious songs, right? Why the heck is the pastor talking about all these depressing things? Why did I pick this passage to just bring us all down? Why? Well, it's because this is why Jesus was born. This is why Jesus was born. This is what makes Christmas... Christmas. This is why Christmas is good news. If God just showed up without a solution to our problem, then we would be facing everything that the servant faces here. We would be crushed in anguish, cut off from him. But it's because the servant has come to die for us that we can have what it says here, that we can have peace. Verse 5, right? Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. It's, it's only by receiving what Jesus has done for us that we can be accounted righteous in verse 11. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. To be righteous is to, is to in God's eyes, to be, to be counted, to, to have measured up to his standards, to be acceptable to God. It's only through Jesus that we can come before God and know that God says, I love you. And that God embraces us. And we can know that we are his. This is what we need most. This is what we need most. We are, we're separated from God for our sin, our failure to live as he calls us to. And the only thing that will satisfy us, the only thing that, that will enable us to be restored to him is the servant, the work of the servant. That is how he brings light. That is how he brings salvation. By, by coming and living and dying in our place as a substitute so that if we receive his work, we don't have to face that judgment. We don't have to bear that weight. It's starting there that we can begin when we, when we know that we have peace with God, when we know that God loves us and that he's for us, it is then that we can begin to make progress on all of these other issues in our lives. This is what we need most. We need to count on the work of another. Um, you know that math class in college that I had? Um, I ended up doing pretty well in the class, um, probably because I was so afraid of being ashamed and embarrassed in front of the class. I worked really hard, and I, you know, there are some people who never went to the board. They didn't care. 
But I went to the board almost every time he called me, and I, and I like, proved stuff. And so my, my teacher just loved me. And, uh, um, and, and I was, you know, rarely disappointed him. So there's the, there's the, the semester me when I was, like, constantly, you know, um, uh, just making my teacher proud, doing everything he asked of me, answering all the questions, coming up with all the solutions. But then it came for a, to exam time, and he gave us this exam. And the exam was a take-home exam. He gave us a, a, a sheet of paper that, that we had to take home and, and work on and, and, and prove all these problems that we'd been working on all semester. And so I took the exam home. I was, like, really arrogant, you know, and, and just did it real quick, handed it back in. And then I, I, he contacted me, like, the next week, and he asked me to come by his office to talk about the exam. And I, and I, I came to his office, and I, and I sat down with him, and, he, and he's like, Jeff, um, you know, you've done some good work this year, but uh, your exam... You only did the problems on the first page. There was a whole backside of the, t- of the page that I didn't even look at. I only did 50% of the problems for the exam. So, you know, if this is math, you know, you only do 50% of the problems. You know what that means. You fail. You fail. And I was like, yeah. But you know what he did? He, he was like, but Jeff, you know, the, the work during the semester was so good that I'm going to treat you based on your semester work and just forget about the exam completely. And so I was like, I'll take it. <laughs> you know, it's, it's not an exact, you know, illustration because, uh, you know, as we come to God, we need to count on the work of another. But here, I was treated not based on the exam me. I was, traced, I was treated based on my semester me, right? But that's the only way we can come to God. That's the only way we can solve our problems is, is by coming to God based not on me and all that I do and all that I try, all the ways that I try or all the ways that I fail, but based only on Jesus and what he has done on my behalf. And, and as we do that, that is when we can experience the peace that he talks about here. And we can lay hold of that peace. We can lay hold of the righteousness that he talks about here. We can, we can, that's where we can lay hold of verse 5, the, the healing that he, that he talks about here. In our own hearts, in our relationships, in all of life, that is our only hope by clinging to the servant who is unexpected, who is unimpressive. That is what we need to to, to fix our eyes on this Christmas. You know, as you celebrate a baby being born, not all that impressive, right? We need, to, we need to lay hold of God's provision for us and know that it's enough. It's enough. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the gift of your servant, Jesus. That he is enough. That everything that he did was enough. Father, we thank you for the sacrifice that he made for us, the torment that he experienced, the anguish that he experienced, the fact that he experienced being cut off from you, his father, so that we might be brought near and and healed and made whole and made righteous. Father, we pray that that you, you would help us to see that that is the problem of our lives, that we need fixing that has been fixed if we will only trust in you and what you've done. Father, help us to 
to rejoice in that this Christmas. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come to the Lord's table, we're going to take a moment to confess our sin together. Uh, The fact that we have all turned away from God.